Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Signs. This series looks at the seven signs found in the Gospel of John, symbolic events that call us to embrace Jesus as the Lord who has come to redeem his people. Today we're going to be looking at the second of Jesus' signs, which means we'll be looking at uh, Jesus cleansing the temple. We'll be reading in John chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. As always, it'll be up here on the screen. It's also in the booklet. And we will, um, uh, you can also follow along in your Bible. I'll be using the New International Version this morning uh, to teach from. So John chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. Hear now the word of the Sovereign Lord. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at the tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Five years ago, uh, Linda and I had the great privilege. We went and spent 15 days in Italy. It was the trip of a lifetime. We really loved it. And one of the things that was most moving was some of the incredible architecture uh, that were in places like Rome and Florence, buildings that dated back a couple thousand years. And they were buildings, and it was also artwork, things that were meant to make the human spirit soar. They were meant to make you contemplate who God was and who we were, and uh, they were just incredible sights. And while you would be sitting there attempting to contemplate these things and being drawn into the beauty, these guys were going around trying to sell cheap trinkets to you. And the most annoying ones had these laser things, and everywhere you were trying to look, they were shining them in front of you, and they had these toys that were going. And even as you would walk from one to the other, they would bounce it on the ground in front of you to try and see if your eyes would follow. And if you did, they were right on top of you. Can I tell you, it utterly ruined the moment. I mean, you're looking at priceless treasures, Great architecture, things that have survived thousands of years, and these guys are out there hawking cheap trinkets to everyone. Uh, talk about desecrating a moment. Well, we're looking at something similar today. Jesus is coming out of Cana of Galilee, out of the country, into the city. He comes down to the temple, this place that of all places was meant 
to cause people to contemplate who God was and who they were. It was meant to be a house of worship and prayer. And suddenly, in the midst of it, Jesus appears to be going crazy. He's forming a whip. He's driving people out. He's speaking all these harsh words. What in the world is going on here in this sign? Why is he cleansing the temple? And what does it tell us about who he is? So let's dive into the text. If you begin looking at at verse 13, we note that Jesus is going to Jerusalem. We're told there that he's going up for the Jewish Passover. Now, this is, John's telling us two things. Number one, we're shifting the scene from rural Cana, this very small, insignificant town, to Jerusalem, the capital of uh, Israel. And Jesus is going up for Passover, and he's actually going up with great crowds. John doesn't necessarily mention it, but lots and lots of people would go into Jerusalem for Passover. And John very often notes what's going on, and it's important that it is Passover. This is one of three Passovers, the first one that John mentions. And in fact, only John keeps telling us when it was Passover regarding what Jesus was doing. And Passover was actually one of three mandatory festivals for God's people. If you were part of Israel, three times a year, God had said he wanted all the people to come down to Jerusalem. If Deuteronomy 16, 16 says, three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose. And the first one is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was actually a seven-day-long festival that was attached to Passover. And since all these are week-long festivals, that's the one that's mentioned here in the text, but it's Passover and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They would go together. And notice there it stated that no one shall appear before the Lord empty-handed. A representative from every family was to come, and they were to come. Since it was going to be Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they were to come ready to offer sacrifices down at the temple. And they actually, by this time, were to pay a temple tax. So you had to have a sacrificial animal, and you had to have a way to pay the temple tax, one problem of which was you couldn't use normal money. The normal currency that you used was not accepted at the temple. You had to use what was known as a Tyrian shekel. The reason for that was they knew the purity of it. So you had to use uh, money that was, was a good coin because sometimes people brought cheap coins. They used kind of fake currency to make sure, in essence, there was no counterfeiting. You had to use this. And everybody was coming down. Not all Jews from around the world came, though each year there were many pilgrims from around the world. Uh, However, there were also most of the people from up in Galilee where Jesus was. It was not that far a trip, so most of them came year after year after year up to Jerusalem. And so Jesus comes in here, and he goes into the temple. And if you notice in verses 14 to 16 in our text, Jesus comes into the temple courts, and he finds people selling cattle and sheep and doves. These are the sacrificial animals that were used. And others sitting at tables exchanging money. And the exchanging of money is because you're bringing in your normal currency and you've got to get the approved currency uh, to pay the temple tax. And this is something that's been going on for a little period of time here. It's, it's actually a recent change. But Jesus suddenly makes a whip out of cords and it tells you he has to make it because you're not, they, they keep you from bringing such things into the temple. Nobody's allowed to bring weapons into the temple for good reason. But Jesus makes a whip 
And he starts going after these people. Now, you have to understand, they believe they're there providing a service. And in a certain way, they are. As you can imagine, if you had to walk 20 miles to get to the temple, you don't want to try and bring some doves with you for 20 miles or a sheep with you for 20 miles. And remember, when they get to the temple, they have to be a perfect animal for sacrifice. So you could bring your sheep the whole 20 miles and then have the priest say, yeah, this one's got a defect. It's no good. You can't use it. So these people say, well, we're providing a service. And nobody has these Tyrian shekels. We're providing a service. But Jesus takes a whip, he drives the animals out, he scatters the money, and we're kind of shocked when this is going on because everything in the gospel so far has not shown Jesus acting this way. And I want you to think just for a moment before we get to why he's doing this, how different this sign is than the first sign. Because part of what's important is the contrast. Remember the very first sign happens at a house in Cana of Galilee, an unknown little town. This happens in God's house in Jerusalem. In Cana, Jesus speaks words, and other people actually do the actions that bring the sign about. They're the ones that gather the water. They're the ones that dip it out and taste it and do all that. Here, Jesus does everything himself. In Cana of Galilee, how many people even knew that the sign had been done? Almost, yeah, just almost nobody, the servants and the disciples. Here, you can't be in the temple and not see what's going on. Jesus is causing a ruckus right there in the middle of everything that's going on. In Cana, the sign is one of blessing. I'm turning water into wine, a representation Messiah has come, and it's a time of blessing. Here, it's a sign of judgment. I've come into my temple and I find things not as they ought to be and I'm coming to bring judgment. In virtually every aspect you can think of, the second sign is the opposite of the first sign. So that should bring up a question to us. Why is Jesus doing this? Now one of the things that many people will focus on is they say, well, they were doing corrupt things. They were overcharging for these doves and sheep and, and they were charging a high price to exchange the money. And there is some evidence that that was in fact the case. And in the other gospels in a temple cleansing, we see Jesus kind of putting focus on it. But that's not what he focuses on here in John's gospel. And there may in fact be two temple cleansings. If you watch After Hours later this week, I'll talk with you about that. You can watch it. I don't have time to go into it today. But what we want to do is focus on why John says Jesus is doing this. What's going on? What does Jesus actually say here? And I want you to notice, he doesn't say anything about you all are ripping the people off. He doesn't make any comment about that. His words are very straightforward. Stop turning my father's house into a market. It's not that you're making too much money off of it. It's you shouldn't be doing this here in the first place. This is not the proper place for what's going on. The problem is not the service of selling animals for sacrifice, nor the money exchange. Uh, the problem is you're doing it in the temple. And this is actually a new change that had come about under the high priest, who's going to actually be putting Jesus to death, they had always done this out across the valley. So you could come in from Jerusalem, you could get it out there, you know, half a mile away or whatever. Now they've moved it into the temple. 
and they move it into the court of the Gentiles. In the temple, when you came in, there was a court of the Gentiles, and there was what was known as the court of the women, and then there was the, uh, you start moving into the inner courts where people could worship. The guys could go into worship, and then you get into the Holy of Holies, uh, where only the priest could go into the holy place, and then only the high priest, the Holy of Holies. So out in this outer court, which is the only place the Gentiles are allowed, they've actually, in archaeology, they've dug up and found a sign that is written in Greek that tells you if you're a Gentile and you go beyond this, you're responsible for what's going to happen to you, which is death. You're going to be killed for doing that, so don't go beyond this. And we've warned you. We put a sign up telling you not to do it. And so out in this area where they are restricted, they can't worship. The stunningly beautiful temple has been turned into an animal stall for the Gentiles. The place that's supposed to be for prayer and worship is a noisy market uh, right there in Jerusalem. And so the only place has been that's for them that God said this is a house of prayer for all nations. That's Isaiah 56, 7. God says this is a house of prayer for all nations. It's been turned into a noisy market. And so Jesus is upset with them. And please don't miss why he's doing it. His being upset is because they're treating the temple like it's their house. But it's not. Jesus reminds them that it's the house of God. And notice he doesn't even call it the temple. He says, you're turning my father's house into a marketplace. It's not your house. It's the house of my father God. You don't get to determine what goes on here. He determines what goes on here. It does not belong to you. And you are responsible to not profane the place or the worship that goes on inside it. Now, this is really important for us to grasp just in passing. This is a warning. God does not place a premium on convenience, but rather on true worship. See, what they're arguing is, well, this is convenient. It makes it easy. And Jesus is telling them, I don't give two hoots about convenience. That's not the point. Worship is the point, not what's convenient for you. In fact, can I tell you, if you go through and you look in the Scripture, does God ever give us rules that seem to be inconvenient? So, yeah. Let me, let me tell you, sometimes inconvenience is the point. That's why he gave it. Because he's saying, I'm going to box you in because if you are following what I'm telling you, you can't get off into the ditch that I'm trying to protect you from. So be very, very careful about deciding that, well, people couldn't act, you couldn't actually follow this today. Well, yeah, we could. It might be wildly inconvenient for us too, and that may be precisely the point. Because what matters, what is central, is knowing God, following God, obeying God, worshiping God, not your convenience or mine. And I'll come back to this in a little while because if you pay attention to American culture, you should be squirming a little bit right now. Because I want to tell you, if there is an altar we worship at, it is the altar of convenience. You can sell anything if you make it convenient. And Jesus is here saying, hey, I get why you're doing it, and I'm here to tell you no, no. Wrong answer, not concerned with that. True worship of God 
is what I'm concerned with. And if God had wanted this, he'd have told you to put it that way in the temple. But he didn't, and he didn't for a reason. So notice there's a response uh, to what goes on here. In verse 17, we read that the disciples suddenly remember Psalm 69, verse 9. Psalm 69, 9 says, zeal for your house will consume me. Notice here, because Jesus had said, you're, you're turning my father's house into a market. They go back and they think of the scripture and they say, oh, you know, it says that zeal for your house is going to consume me. Now, this is Psalm 69, 9, and the entire psalm is a psalm of a righteous man who is surrounded by evil. Uh, he's full of passion for God, his glory, and his worship, but that's getting him in trouble with everyone around him. And so the disciples say, oh, this is a psalm that ultimately people come up and said, this is about what Messiah is like. Messiah is zealous for God and his work, but he's going to be surrounded by evil doers. And it's also very prophetic, however, even more than probably the disciples understood at that moment, because notice what the text says is, zeal for your house will do what? Consume me. Well, there's two ways it consumes. Number one, he's consumed with the passion for it, but you remember I said last week, Jesus told Mary, you better be careful what you're wishing for, Mom, because when I start this, the clock starts. The end result of all this that's going on right here is they will consume Jesus. He will be put to death because he won't play the game according to their rules. And so zeal for the house is going to consume him. He's literally going to be consumed and die. And the disciples recognize this. But notice the Jewish leaders come in. Now what's interesting is, notice what they don't do. They don't argue, you're wrong. It's okay to sell the stuff here in the temple. They don't say anything about that because probably they all know that what they're doing is not right. Okay, they've already got a bit of a guilty conscience. So notice they don't even say that. They just say, by what authority are you doing this? Because actually, as we're going to see in a few minutes, when Jesus does this, it's a claim to him being the Messiah. And they recognize that. And so they say, well, look, we need a sign to prove that you're the Messiah. Now, what's really, really funny is the irony is Jesus just gave them the sign that he's the Messiah, and they're saying, we want a sign for the sign, <laughs> is what they're in essence telling him right here, okay? And so we're going to see Jesus doesn't play that game either, but that's what they're doing. They're saying, so you're claiming to be the Messiah. You think you've got the authority to come in here and just cleanse the temple. They don't argue that what he's saying is wrong is wrong, but they're saying, but we need some proof that you have this authority. And then Jesus, as he very often does in the Gospels, kind of swipes them aside and gets to the issue he wants to talk about. And so his answer is, okay, I'll give you a sign. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it again. Now, it's kind of interesting. He actually changes the word for temple. The, the, the Greek has two words for temple. One kind of means the entire temple precincts. That's what was used earlier when Jesus came in. The other one that he swaps to here really meant kind of the holy place where worship went on, the sanctuary. So if you want, you could say he's changing now to saying, destroy this sanctuary and I'll raise it again in three days. Now, of course, on one level, it's kind of funny because he's throwing a challenge down and he's saying, sure, if you want me to give you a sign, just go ahead and destroy the whole place here 
and then I'll raise it up. Well, of course, are they going to take that offer up? No, they're not going to begin to do that. Uh, but on another level, what Jesus is actually doing is we know that the disciples tell us in verse 22, he's actually referring to the real temple, which is himself. And he's telling them, if you destroy this temple, meaning me, I will raise it up in three days. I can accomplish it. Now, once again, notice the irony. John's always writing at multiple levels here because the irony is that they are actually going to do that. They sit there and say, well, we're not going to destroy the temple. And what Jesus is saying is, oh, yes, you are. You are going to destroy the real temple. Zeal for the Father's house is going to consume me. You're going to consume me. You're going to destroy the temple. And I'm telling you now, and remember this, when you do it, I'm going to raise it up in three days. And you're going to know by that I am the Messiah. And I have had authority to do everything you have denied me authority to do all along. It has been mine. Now, what's also interesting is there's actually a third level. Because they reject Jesus' authority, they do put him to death and destroy his temple, and then because they do that, what ultimately happens to the very temple that they're concerned with, that building of stone? It gets destroyed as well. Not one stone is left upon another. The entire thing gets destroyed because they ignored the time of God's coming to them. And, and I'll just throw out as a little thing, I'm not going to talk about this much today, but one of the saddest things is, when Jesus is here stating all of this, he, you're, if you remember in Matthew's gospel, he goes back and when he does another temple cleansing, one of the things that he actually says is, your house is left to you desolate. The spirit is gone. It's Ichabod. There's no glory. There's nothing left here. And how long does the temple, the temple continue to operate after that point? Forty years. Because it really made no difference whether God was there or not. They could go on just fine doing what they were doing, whether God was there or not. Which is part of the problem that Jesus is driving at right here. You've got your concerns, God's got his, and they are not the same. So notice how the leaders respond. They comment, they say, this, is, this has been in construction for 46 years. Actually, the construction continued almost up until the time that it got destroyed. They barely had done the ribbon-cutting ceremony, and then the Romans came in and destroyed the whole thing. And it's already been going on for 46 years. But what they say is, and this is a little bit harder to see in English. You might have noticed when I read it, but in Greek, it's emphatic. They say, this has been being built for 46 years, and you, you, you're going to raise it in three days if it's knocked down. There is a huge emphasis on not you. There's nothing about you that would indicate you could do any of this, Jesus. And so they're beginning their rejection of the signs and Jesus, which is going to continue till they kill him. This is another difference between in Cana, everybody that sees the sign believes. Well, now all of a sudden we discover with the second sign, not everybody seeing signs will believe. They will not. And in fact, some who see the signs, we're going to find they actually have a de defective faith. And so they are rejecting him. But remember, the irony is going to be because they reject him and the sign, they're actually going to bring the sign about in the end. And it's going to be the destruction of the building they love. Because the, to be blunt, they love the building more than they love God. 
That, that's what they're, they're interested in what they're doing there in the building. God is interested in actual presence and praise. Now, this is the basic sign that Jesus does. Why does he do this? What is the reality that this sign points towards? The reality is that Jesus is the Lord of the house, and he's the true temple. We're going to see over and over again they deny. In a few weeks, we're going to look at a miracle he does on the Sabbath, and they don't care about the miracle. They care that you made a dude walk with his mat on the Sabbath. That's what matters to us. That's what the argument is. And Jesus, time after time, is going to say, everything you have, I'm the Lord of. And so I have the right to do with it what I want. And here is that he's the Lord of the temple, the Lord of the house of God. Now, this was something that they knew in the book of Malachi, which was the final book written in the Old Testament. Um, Malachi had prophesied that the Messiah was going to come to the temple. He was going to cleanse it and the people's worship. In Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, we read this. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Now, you remember Jesus told us who that messenger was. Who is it? John the Baptist. John the Baptist has come, and he's prepared the way, and he's done it. And then this is what happened. Then, after that messenger has come, then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But see, here's the thing. Oh, they've wanted him to come, but now he's here. They said they want him to come into the temple. That's what they pray all the time. Well, now he shows up, and he marches into the temple. And notice what Malachi prophesies he's going to do. But who can endure the day of his coming? This is what you see in the prophets over and over again. Their saying is, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> so they wanted him to come. He says, but now who's going to endure it when he comes? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings and righteousness. So notice here what, what Malachi is saying is the Lord's going to come to his temple. They said they wanted it, now they have it. But he comes to purify. Notice all of those words for purification. Refiner's fire, launderer's soap, pure, uh, a refiner, a purifier. He will purify the Levites, refine them, okay? You don't have to have a doctorate in theology to pick out what's the point that's going to happen when Messiah shows up. You've wanted him. He's now here, but he's here to cleanse and purify. And notice in verse 3, the result of this is going to be he's going to have actual true worship. People are going to bring him offerings and righteousness. There will be true worship. And so when Jesus comes into the temple, and he comes in for the first time after he's begun his messianic ministry, and the very first thing he does is cleanse and purify the temple, he's putting up in a big, bold, neon sign saying, I'm the Messiah. You've been seeking me. You've been saying you want to see me. Well, I am here. And as I told you, when I come, I come to refine, I come to purify and do all this. And Notice, also, this cleansing is going to allow the Gentiles to be brought into worship. Because, see, here's the funny thing. They were desecrating the temple. They were doing all kinds of things that should not be done in the temple. But what they did not want really to happen was Gentiles to come in. 
That wasn't really acceptable. And Jesus says, you've got it all upside down. I want the temple purified of all of this mess you've put in here, and I want the doors flung open, and I want the Gentiles to be in here, and I want them to worship. You've got it wrong on both counts. Jesus is throwing the gauntlet down, is what he's doing. And sad to say, the leaders of the temple snatch the gauntlet up. That's what they're doing in rejecting him. Now, the second point is not only that Jesus is going to purify, not only that the Messiah would purify, but that somehow the Messiah was actually going to rebuild the temple. He was going to make a new temple. Now, this temple in Jerusalem, make no mistake, was a marvel to see. It was a glorious temple. We, we read about it in Josephus' day because of the way the stones were and the gold. They said it glittered like, like the sun out of heaven. When you came over the mountains to see it, it was a marvel. When the Roman general who came to destroy it in 66 to 70 A.D. saw it, he was overwhelmed by it and tried to stop the troops from doing anything to destroy it because it was such a beautiful sight. He did not accomplish that because Jesus had already prophesied it did not matter what they did, the temple was going to be destroyed. This thing was a marvel, but there was an expectation that the Messiah was going to rebuild and make an even more glorious temple, a new and better temple where everyone would come to worship. And this was seen in a bunch of Old Testament texts. For those who've been around for a while, you remember when we studied King David and we were looking at uh, David in the Game of Thrones series. In 2 Samuel 7, 13, when God established the covenant, he had said, he, speaking of a son of David, is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And initially they thought that was Solomon. The problem, of course, was Solomon did build the temple, but then Solomon became unfaithful and the throne of his kingdom was basically established for one generation, and then it gets split in half. And so the Jews came to recognize, oh, David and Solomon are just a picture. The Messiah is going to come. He's actually going to build the temple, and he's actually going to be established as a ruler forever. So Zechariah, years later, after the exile, when the people come back and they are actually rebuilding the temple, this is not Solomon's temple, they're rebuilding a temple, and it's before Herod's temple, which was all glorious. It was a second temple. Zechariah writes this. Tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from his place and will build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne, and there will be harmony between the two. So suddenly, the kings and the priests are going to be joined together in this person called the branch who's also written about in Isaiah, and he's written about in Jeremiah. And the Jews, as they meditated on this, said, this is the Messiah. Only the Messiah can be a priest king. Only the Messiah can fulfill these offices. And what he's apparently going to do is he's going to build the temple. Now, both of these had an initial fulfillment. Solomon did build an initial temple. There was Zerubbabel and others that were involved and rebuilt the temple after the exile. But the Jews recognized neither of those were the final fulfillment. Neither of those were ultimately where this was going. And so they started looking forward and saying, well, when Messiah comes, he's not only going to cleanse out the temple. He's not only going to cleanse our worship and purify and make it better. He's going to build the final, true, real temple. There were other 
pictures, for example, in Ezekiel 40 to 48, the vision of God's temple where there's going to be a river of water flowing out that's going to cleanse and purify and bring life everywhere uh, we go. And even in many extra biblical texts during the period that you can read, people talked about this and expected the Messiah to come. And what Jesus is saying is, you all have been talking about this for a long time. You all have been looking forward to this for a long time. I'm here telling you, I am he. I am the Messiah. I have come, and I am telling you, if this temple is destroyed, it does not matter, because in three days, I will raise up the true temple of God. Everything the Old Testament typified is going to come true in me. You want to see Ezekiel's temple? Look here. I am the temple. Not just the cleanser of the temple, I am the temple. This is why John, you remember I said when we look at the, the early verses, the prologue in his gospel, he keeps tipping his hand to where he's going to go. Well, one of the most famous verses in that prologue says, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling. The literal Greek word there is tabernacled. The word became flesh and he became the tabernacle of God among us. We have seen his glory because what marked the temple and the tabernacle of God in the Old Testament? It's when the glory of God came on. If the glory's not there, what was the tabernacle? It was a tent. If the glory's not there, what's Solomon's temple? It's just a bunch of rocks. That's all it is. Please understand this. Any building does not make the temple. The presence of God, the glory of God marks out the temple. And so Jesus comes full of grace, full of the Spirit. He is the tabernacle and the temple. He's the place where God's glory now dwells. And what this means, and this is critical for us, and this is one of the things that Jews struggle with, once Jesus has come, is there any place for another building that is called the temple? No. Please hear me. If we build another building in Jerusalem right now and mark it and say temple, what is it? A bunch of stones. That's all it is. There aren't two temples. There's one. And who is the temple? Jesus is the temple. Who is the place where God's glory dwells? Jesus. He is the fullness of the glory of God. The temple is the place where you gained access to God, to come in and worship. Who is the way and the truth and the life that provides the only access there is to God? Jesus. To think that there's going to be another temple is to say, well, somehow God's going to have a plan B. Friends, God doesn't do plan B. He always accomplishes plan A. And so, Remember, for us, why this is important is the building is never the place of God's presence anymore. We, we get this so mixed up in our language. We pick up and we say, what, 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 do we, what do we call this place here where we all drive on Sunday morning? In our language, we say, that, that's the church. That's the church I go to. What is this? It's a building. That, that's what it is. It's a building. What is the church, the place of God's dwelling? Us, look around. What, what if we all pick up and drive in our cars and go to Quiet Waters Park and sit out in a field? Where is Bay Ridge Christian Church? At Quiet Waters Park in the field. That's where we'd be. 
This is the building. I'm glad to have it. I'm glad we don't sit out in the rain and the cold and the snow and all of that. But make no mistake, this is not the church. This is not the place of God's dwelling. The people are the place of God's dwelling. Jesus and his people, the church, are the only. If you are taking notes, put it in all caps, underline, highlight, circle, the only temple. Not one and there's going to be another. This is the only temple there is. All the types and shadows are fulfilled in Jesus. And when reality comes, you don't go back to type and shadow. Okay, you don't do that anymore. We now have the reality. So worship is not about the location, but about the presence of Jesus. Now, how do we apply this? What does this mean for us? Well, I want you to see John summarizes it here, and we'll see this in these signs over and over again. There's three responses to what Jesus is doing. And these are in verses 22 to 25. So we read that Jesus says all this, and in verse 22 we read that after he was raised from the dead, the disciples recall it. So in other words, did the disciples get it while Jesus was talking? No. Like we see over and over again in the Gospels, they're as confused as the Pharisees are about what Jesus is saying. They don't, they don't get it. But after he's been raised, they're like, oh, I know what he was talking about now. Now all this makes sense. So they understand that. And, and he says, then they believe the Scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So n- note there what, what they're doing. Then we have down in verse 23, many people saw signs he was performing and believed in his name. And then there's one other group, which was the leaders. Okay, and they're not in these verses right here, but we've already seen what did the leaders do regarding the claims of Jesus? They rejected him outright. You are going to be the one that does all this? I don't think so. And they rejected him. We're going to see that rejection get worse and worse and worse right up until they put him to death. So they're beginning a pattern of rejecting Jesus and his claims. You can actually see it in verse 20. And it culminates in them consuming him by having him put to death. And friends, there are always, when we are confronted by Jesus, one sign, one response to it, always is people who simply reject it. That is still true today. We, we sometimes get naive and we think, well, if you just only understood. No. There are some people will reject it and will reject it outright. Always have been, always will be. But the thing that I urge you to see is, even when they were trying to reject Jesus, even when they were trying to stop him from doing what he was doing, all they ended up doing was working into his own plan and accomplishing the very thing he was going to do. You cannot successfully stiff-arm Jesus. doesn't work because he's the Lord of the house. And so in the very attempt to kill him, you're actually fulfilling his words on multiple levels. And the very thing you thought you were protecting because you didn't want him coming in and messing with it, you will usually watch crumble right in front of your eyes. And that's exactly what these leaders find. But there's the second group, which is the disciples, and they believe a full, true, lasting faith. Notice there in verse 
uh, 22, they believed the Scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. I love that because notice it's equating Jesus' word with the Scripture there. They're believing them both. When Jesus is making these claims, they're saying that's true and it's true just like Scripture is. And they're understanding Psalm 69.9 is about Jesus. And in fact, they're starting to understand that the whole Old Testament is about Him. The resurrection opens their eyes and they believe God and they believe God's word because this is absolutely essential. There is no Jesus other than the Jesus of Scripture. Okay? The Jesus you get is the Jesus that's revealed in the Scripture. And so to believe Jesus, to have faith in Jesus, is to believe in the Word of God. Because it's the only access we have to who He is. And so they believe not in the Jesus they want. Because the fact is, the disciples, you got to pick, what do you think the disciples were doing when Jesus started doing this? They were all standing there with their mouth open, looking at each other like, what in the world is going on? They're as confused as Mary was at the first sign. We're going to see time after time after time, they're as confused as everybody else. But here's the difference. They trust him. And another time where we're going to see a similar story play out when Jesus is going to multiply the loaves and the fish. And all kinds of people, when they understand and they don't like what they're hearing, they turn away. And Jesus turns to the 12 and says, I don't have a different message. Are you going to go too? And Peter, and you got to hear Peter's voice, is like, we really have no idea what you're doing right now. But we do know this. Where else could we go? There is nowhere else. You alone have got the words of life. Utterly confused right now, Jesus, about what you're saying and doing. This is not comfortable to me, but you're the Lord. So I bow, and I do what I'm told. And that's what the disciples are doing here. See, and that leads to the, this true, full, lasting faith. They have knowledge, they have assent, but they have an active trust. They're going to cling to him and say, this looks like it could get to be a wild ride, but we're hanging on. But see, there's the third group, and these are people who had a shallow, partial, temporal faith. Notice there in verse 23, it says, while he's in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people see the signs, it certainly includes this temple cleansing, and they believed in his name. Now, the reason I say it's a shallow a partial faith is, verse 24, notice I've got highlighted, Jesus would not entrust himself to them. This is hard in English. Those three words that are highlighted in yellow are the same word in Greek. The disciples had faith in Jesus. This other crowd had faith, but Jesus didn't have faith back in them. The disciples entrusted themselves to Jesus. The crowd said, oh, we want to entrust ourselves too. And Jesus said, but I don't entrust myself back to you. Because, John tells us, Jesus sees what's really going on in the heart. Something is wrong here. And now note, the very next verse is, Now at night, a leader of the Jews named Nicodemus came to Jesus. See, and he's a picture of exactly what's going on. Because Nicodemus comes in and says, Oh, we know God's got to be with you because nobody could do all these signs unless God was with him. And then after a minute or two of conversation, we don't read, and Nicodemus believed Scripture in Jesus' word. We read Nicodemus saying, this doesn't make any sense. You're talking craziness. And then wandering off. 
Now, thankfully, he comes back later. But this crowd is in that place. Their faith is apparently not a full, real faith. They like Jesus until he says things they don't like. And we're going to see the same thing in John 6. And we're going to see the same thing in John 8. Because let me ask you a question. Does Jesus have a tendency to say things that we don't like? You seek the Lord of the temple, and then he shows up. And he shows up the way he is, not the way I necessarily wanted him to be. And this isn't me saying that's the way you all are. It's the way bread is. I, I find myself shocked when he shows up sometimes and he starts doing stuff. The real Jesus is the one in Scripture. And if you've got faith, in something else, Jesus says, I don't entrust myself to that. I don't give myself over to that. I'm calling for true faith, real faith, not some fake Jesus that you think you control, but really me. And so, in fact, if you are going to be a disciple, here's the uncomfortable fact. You will have a morning you will wake up and Jesus will be standing at your bedside with a whip. And he's ready to drive some things out. And then that's when we pull out, but I've got meek and mild Jesus. And the one standing at the bedside says, that one doesn't exist. That's a figment of your own imagination. So do we want the real one? Many will believe in Jesus, and say they believe in his word until his word crosses their desires and will. Because ultimately, at that point, it's my desire and my will that is central. But that's not what this is. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to come to the Lord's table. Because this is a very appropriate way for us to deal with this. The Lord of the house is very gracious, and he spreads his table out for us. And at this table, we're reminded that his body was consumed for us. It was broken and shattered for us. And he invites you and me to this table. He invites anyone who says, I believe, to this table. But let's be real clear. What that statement and that phrase means is not, this sounds okay to me. It means that which he says, remember that song we sang this morning? Wherever you lead, I will go. Whatever you say, I will do. Who you love, I will love. Whatever, wherever you're working. Remember that song's based on that picture of the gospel when Ruth tells her mother-in-law, wherever you go, I will go. Whatever you will do, I will do. I will be with you. I will stand there. I will stay there till death. And that's what Jesus tells us. That's what faith is. Do you believe that? Because friends, having been walking with him since 1978, I will assure you, I still regularly am not sure exactly what he's doing. It can be confusing. He knows what he's doing. But I don't always. But the good news is I don't need to. I need to trust. I need to cling to him. So 
I encourage and invite us all here with that true faith. And as we do so today, I'm going to read in 1 Corinthians 11, and I encourage us, it's a great time for us to come serious with God about any sin. If you know Jesus has come in and there's areas he's wanting to drive out, this is the day we get serious and we do business with him and we say, yes, Lord, I I want you to cleanse me out. I want you to make the temple clean where I've been claiming things because convenience or it was the easy path. That's not what I want. What I want is to be molded and shaped by your spirit into your image. If you're here as a guest today, you don't have to be a member of our church to partake. You do need to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me be very, very clear. That means the Jesus of Scripture, who is not very popular right now in America. He says and does all kinds of things we don't like because his concern is not building the American dream. His concern is building the kingdom of God. If you believe in the true Jesus of Scripture, we encourage everyone here to eat. Confess your sins. Receive grace. Receive forgiveness. Because the good news is the disciples were just as messed up as everybody else there. And he was willing to be broken for them so they could be built into the temple. And he makes the same offer to us. So what I receive from the Lord I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. So for this reason, each of us ought to examine ourselves before we eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would be at work in each and every one of us. Lord, I pray, if there's even any here who struggle right now and they think, I just, Lord, I don't know if I can do this, I pray that, Father, you would show them it's not up to us. Just as Jesus did the work to save us, so your Holy Spirit does the work to empower us. Lord, I pray that you would stir up on us that same sentiment that's there in Peter. Where else could we go? You alone have the words of life. Come, Holy Spirit, do this in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. As you get the elements, please take them and hold on to them. We will uh, take them together in a few moments. And as always, if you need uh, gluten-free, if you just raise your hand, we will bring that to you. And take the moments to consider and ask the Lord to reveal areas that he wants to cleanse and purify in your heart and life. Gracious Father, your desire has always been to dwell with your people. You dwelt with Israel in the tabernacle and the temple, the only real temple of God in the earth at that time. But these were only a shadow of the true temple 
our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. As the Messiah, he cleansed the old temple, for zeal for your house consumed him. And he is now the only access to you, the way, the truth, the life. Father, as his body was broken to provide access to your presence, so we have broken this bread, and so we eat it in faith, that he is the true Messiah, the only begotten Son of God, the very fullness of your presence and glory. Take and eat. Lord, in the temple many lambs were sacrificed, offered to cover our sins. But the blood of animals could never remove sin. They were only a shadow of the true Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. So when you came in the fullness of time, you were slain as the Lamb of God. And your blood has completely saved us from our sins. Bearing the penalty, washing away the stain, and removing the guilt. As your blood was poured out for us and for our salvation, so we have poured out this cup. And so we drink it in faith that you are the one, the only Lamb of God. Take and drink. Let's stand together for the concluding prayer. And as I'm praying this, I encourage you, pray and ask the Holy Spirit to come and fall fresh upon you. Holy Spirit of God, you are the one who dwelled in the temple of old, who anointed our Lord Jesus, and who now dwells in us. We cry out to you to form a true, full, and lasting faith in us. We do not want to simply intellectually believe. We want to actively trust with our whole being. We do not want to domesticate Jesus, making him in our own image, and then ignoring him when he does not follow our desires. We want to be obedient disciples, receiving him daily as our Lord, embracing him even when he overturns our desires and drives sin from our lives. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. Fill us. Mold us. Transform our desires until they are in line with your word and your will. Come, Lord, into your temple. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people say, Amen. Now receive God's word of benediction, and I pray you receive it as empowerment to go forth by the Holy Spirit. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it.
In Jesus' name, go forth in his peace. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.